stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Elisha Alambus. It's just after one on a Tuesday afternoon. That means it's time for the Daily Maverick Show. I am in studio with Simon Allison. Welcome back. Thank you, Stilly. It's been a long time since we've had you here, and you're back from your travels. I've heard it's gone massively downhill in the last few weeks, yeah, so I'm sort of here to rescue the ship. It's all gone pitong. All gone pitong. That's why we're bringing in the big guns back in, <laughs> back into the mix. Um, how was your trip, Simon? How's the UK? The good old UK, tea and scones. Ah, the UK. The UK is a lovely place in summer, um, and I happen to have enjoy a few good days. I must say, I was very relieved to to touch down again at Oratumbo and step outside and see some blue skies and and get that heat wave. That that was nice. Yeah, don't you find that the air smells different when you when you get back here? And- it does, and the water tastes different as yeah. well. You know, um, I don't know something water you don't think it has any flavor, but actually. It really does. I mean, everywhere you go, this is just a little bit different, and this tastes like home. Um, on the subject of the UK, um, and possibly a name that's going to have to change quite soon, we'll get into the <laughs> Scottish independence story um, in just a bit. But you've got an interesting anecdote stroke fact you'd like to share with us. I have. I'm not technically related to the UK, actually. Right. Um, but this is from Egypt. And now Egypt um, is planning a new construction Massive new construction project to open up the Suez Canal, to, you know, to allow more ships, to allow them to go through quicker. You know, the Suez Canal being one of the most important trade routes in the world. And so to commemorate, commemorate this grand engineering project, they decided to issue a commemorative stamp, which they did. You know, there's a, there's a, it's for two pounds. Um, a very nice picture of a ship and a canal. Unfortunately, the canal pictured is actually the Panama Canal. Oh, Whew, you know. You can you can almost um, see someone being lined up and shot. I I well, well like that, the interior right? the, sorry the Ministry of Communications has ominously said they are investigating. Wait, so it's been issued, right? It's in circulation. It's, it's in circulation. There's all these stamps of the of the Panama Canal, um, you know, wandering around on on, on envelopes to various bits of the country. Hashtag epic fail, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> so I just think it's fantastic. So um, I know you are one of probably. Two journalists on the face of the planet who don't drink coffee. Yeah, that is true. And I thought that my fact stuff. of the day would be would be coffee related for uh, for today, and that is how many types of coffee do you think there are? Interesting. I would imagine there must be a few because so not beans they call them cultivars, but how many uh-huh. types of coffee? So it's kind of two main types of coffee out there. Well, I just given it away. You're going away. Two, yeah, yes, it's two. two. It's two. So, uh, we get points for that. <laughs> no, so you get the Arabica kind, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty much the stuff that we get, you know, in two, and there's various, mm-hmm. you know, types of blends that, uh, that you get out of mm-hmm. that. And then you get the Robustica, which is the, um, the coffee that's collected from the droppings of the civet in Lovely. Vietnam. Lovely. So those are the two types of coffee that, uh, that you get, um, and which, uh, we, uh, uh which we come to know. Um, so, on the um, so what's been happening in Africa? You've uh, your your latest story is today. You've had a couple of uh, threatening emails from lawyers. <laughs> yeah, tell tell us about this and, and what seems like a pretty incredible story from uh, from uh, Guinea. Well, this is the question. So, did South African spies rig the Ghanaian election in two thousand and ten? 
Now, it sounds completely absurd. Surely we don't do that kind of thing. You know, that's the... Well, do we have that much faith in our intelligence to be able to do that? That's, that's the first question. thing I thought when, when I read the story. Well, I mean, I, you know, given the track record of the CIA, you don't need much faith in intelligence to, to be able to mess things up royally and, and, and uh, interfere where you're not needed. Now, what the story, where the story comes from, it was, it was in the Mail and Guardian on Friday. And it comes from... Is this by the Amabungani? Yes, by the Amabungani. And those guys do, do really good work. And what the story said, it comes from the court papers. Now, in New York, there's a massive corruption suit going on between a mining company called BSGR, BSRG, one or the other, um, some acronym, and uh, they lost their mining rights in Guinea when this new government took over. BSG um, Resources. That's the one. Yeah. Um, and BSG Resources are unhappy because they say, well, well, you know, we should have been able to hold on to our mining rights. Mm-hmm. Government of Guinea, on the other hand, says, well, you acquired them in Illegal. massively illegally, huge corruption. Um, and now that, you know, a, a sort of a tangent from that messy situation is being um, tried in New York. And in its defense, um, in its submissions to court, BSGR has called Tokyo Sehwale, um, Mo Sheikh, Another former intelligence minister and Chalema Mutlanthe. Um, and what they are saying is that these guys can prove. They can, you know, if they were asked to testify and stand, that they could prove that actually South African spies were sent in to rig the Guinean elections. Now, the reason South Africa would do this is because we want mining interests for ourselves. Um, so allegedly, the deal is that South Africa would help the new government get in power. And the new government would help South Africa by giving them a few tidy contracts. So rescinding and and uh, nullifying all those existing contracts and giving them to South Africa yes. essentially was the motivation behind, you know, this, or, or, or elements therein, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there'd be some some resource mm-hmm. kickback did to the, South Africa. Did the report go into how they were supposed to have rigged the elections? Yes. Um, there's a company called uh, Waymark Infotech, I believe it's called, and they're a sort of election consultancy firm. And they go in and help organize African elections. And they provide things like the systems that, that the vote counts are done on. So the assertion is that this company is a front for some intelligence, something. And uh, it, was, it was that company that was actually responsible for, for fiddling the books. Now, we don't know if this is true or not. It seems highly unlikely. Um, as you said, you know, the, 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 to think that we could be so organized as this. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't ring with my experience and uh, the Daily Maverick's experience in general with officialdom. So what was the basis of the Amabungani report? Because, I mean, they're not going to go out and publish something like that unless there's some kind of, you know, evidence to corroborate. Well, well they, the they, you know, I think, um, you know, yes and no, Stilly. So I think that the, the, their report was saying, like, look, there are these guys in New York saying that South Africa was involved in rigging the Guinean elections. That was sort of the extent of, of the, where their story went. And I think that in and of itself is, is interesting, you know. Mm. If, if your government's being accused of massive interference in a, in a, in a legitimate, credible forum, then you, you kind of want to know about it, whether, you know, you as a journalist can independently prove it or not. Uh, there is a place for that kind of story. Um, the story I wrote was a follow-up to this. Um, sort of, you know, detailed what, what Amar Bungane wrote and what the, the court said, or the, the court submission said. Um, but then I also wanted to look at, you know, so sure, we don't know anything about this particular situation, but is it, is it that far-fetched with what we know about 
South Africa's dealings on the continent in general. And the two things that, you know, that, that I have learnt in the course of, of the last three, four years I've been doing this job, one is that South Africa is a lot more involved than we know about. And a lot more under the radar in yes. their involvement, right? Yes, very much so. You know, um, so several intelligence sources have, have told me that there are South African troops in operations all over Africa. Um, not at the same time, but, you know, they have been involved in various things that are not public knowledge. Um, that South Africa is, is, you know, there's this military intervention component of South African foreign policy that we just don't know about. And a great example of this that did come out into the open was when 14 of our soldiers died in the Central African Republic. And everybody in South Africa, including Parliament, was like, what What the hell? We didn't oh, even know we I had know. people there, right? Suddenly, and, you know, suddenly the government was talking about this training mission that they were there for and they were, they were you know. Mm. Um, but actually what's come out is, is they were there to, with the specific mandate to protect the president, President uh, Francois Bazize. Um, Which then opens up a whole host, host of questions of like, why, why are we sending our troops there to protect other people's Exactly, you know, and past. then that brings us to point number two, which is we also have a track record of our foreign policy being dictated by financial interests, or at least by the overlapping of financial interests. You know, so a good example is the Demo- Democratic Republic of Congo, where South Africans, I think there's, there's nearly 2,000 South African soldiers there, a thousand that are part of this crack. Um, United Nations Intervention Brigade actively going out and, and looking for a fight um, to try and um, calm the situation there and tame the rebels. Now, that e- Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, where this is going on, is also where Kulubuse Zuma happens to have 100 billion rands worth of mining assets. Sorry, how much? 100 billion. Wow. Which is quite a lot of money. I mean, that's that's... As big as his waist. I mean, if, the, if waist size could be converted into rand, that's probably the rand equivalent of his waist size. But but just by chance, right? By coincidence, it by happens. coincidence, it just happens, you know. Um, and you know, and other things with the DRC, you know, South Africa giving giving uh, President Kabila's election our seal of approval was, I mean, and that election was was enormously problematic, and yet we were fine with it. Um, and Yes, things have, you know, commercial opportunities have followed, not just Kulibuse Zuma. Also, we've signed a couple of memorandums of understanding to help develop and then get the electricity from the Grand Inga Dam, which is this, would be this massive, massive hydroelectric project to basically dam the Congo River. Now, the Congo River is the most fierce river in the world. Um, damming that river could provide power to the whole of Southern Africa. Just that one project, if it's done properly. So, I mean, it's a good project, nothing wrong with it. But there's no doubt that, that, that our foreign policy is skewed towards um, looking, opening up commercial opportunities for South African companies. Now, look, this is absolutely what governments do. It is part of government's role to, you know, to, to, to facilitate their own country's business. Um, the question in Guinea, though, is, A, whose business are we facilitating? Because the sort of the subtext of the of the article, of the stuff that's come out, is that actually it was you know businesses run by former intelligence mm. chiefs, as opposed to state-owned assets, for example. Yeah, as opposed to state-owned asset or just normal private enterprise. Mm. You know, it's almost like the spooks mm-hmm. were so it's insider trading in a way. You know, protecting personal um, interests, beneficial yeah. interests, right? And um, so, what is you had some um, communication then from the lawyers of BSG Resources after <laughs> publishing did. this article? I did. I, I just got it this morning, actually. 
So now, BSG Resources, in the article, I, I did say that, you know, there were there were some dodgy dealings going they on. They have somewhat of a check it um, passed. Yes, check it passed, and that they weren't necessarily competent to have received their contract in the first place. And uh, the lawyer, some English lawyer, was, was very unimpressed with me. This is not the first time he's been unimpressed with me. Every time I write about the story, um, they get on my back. And uh, I, I think it's part of a – it's this um, – it's a small example of, of, I did a thing in, at university, a study on something called strategic lawsuits against public participation. They're called slaps. And what these slaps do is basically they threaten you, that they bombard you with legalese and, you know, often they'll actually take you to court for some ridiculous thing. But they, 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 A, they tie you up financially and time-wise in dealing with this. And then B, they make you scared to publish things again. So this is, you know, this is a very um, standard corporate technique to control information flow is to whenever there's, there's, you know, there's anything um, problematic for them to, to send in lawyers, you know, and the, the, the letter I got was, you know, was long and detailed and, you know, lots of strong words like defamation and, and uh, you know, at the, at the end it ended with, uh, we, we do not want to take this further at this time unless you comply with our, our demands, you know. Um, so there's this vaguely threatening tone as well. Mm. It wasn't cool. But it's very effective. It, I must say it is effective because now every time I write about this case and about BSG resources, I really think very hard about what I say and how I say it, which is why in this particular instance, actually, I, I feel quite comfortable with how I phrase things because I did, I did think about it carefully. Mm. Um, you're also working on another piece at the moment, which is also quite interesting given – the media um, coverage of ISIS mm. in the last couple of weeks with the beheadings and the, and the expansion and, and actually just coming to the fore mm. um, and the economic impacts in Africa. Well, where's this, which parts are we looking at? Well, ISIS is, is a fascinating story. I'm, I'm, you know, just from a purely political interest perspective, watching how they have taken over these huge swaths of territory in Syria and Iraq in the last few months, how they have completely dominated the global agenda, how they've, they've sort of played the Western governments like puppets. Um, they've been one step ahead the whole time. The, the, these beheadings of, of these journalists are a great example. So two journalists were beheaded and one aid worker, all, all um, one British, two British, one American or something like yeah. that. And, uh, you know, the, the outrage that this has generated in the Western world is, 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 is frankly quite ridiculous because people have been being beheaded in Syria and Iraq for the last, you know, three years as part of this, this conflict. You know, it just so happens that this is the first, the first whiteies. Um, but yet they knew what they were doing. This was a very calculated move to spark the outrage. And basically they're getting the West, the Western media to do their propaganda for them. Um, the message about the Islamic State and what it's doing which has appeal in certain very limited quarters, um, is getting to everywhere it needs to go because the whole world is talking about the subject. So mm. it really is quite remarkable. So, so picking American journalists, British journalists, mm. British aid workers are going to get the exactly. media coverage that you need to get this, to get exactly. it out there, right? It's very, very, very deliberate, very calculated and, and highly, highly effective. Um, and now if we turn our attention to Africa, Africa, as we know, already has its uh, fair share of problems with radical Islamist groups. So you sort of tempted to think, well, you know, it can't be much worse, can it? Um, 
I don't know, I kind of disagree. I think it can be worse, and I think it will get worse. And the reason is, A, that the Islamic State itself wants to get involved in Africa. It wants to get involved everywhere. Its expansion plans are, are huge, you know. The fact that it declared a caliphate, and by declaring a caliphate, an Islamic caliphate, what they're saying is every single Muslim in the world owes allegiance to me. That's, that's what they're saying. They're basically mm-hmm. claiming sovereignty over every single Muslim in the world. Of course, they're not going to get it. But just, the, I mean, the sheer, mm-hmm. the sheer balls it needs yeah. to, to make that kind of claim. Um, so in Africa, what they've already done is in Libya, there's a Islamist group called Ansar al-Sharia. And a little while after, after the Islamic State took over in Iraq, um, they got together all their Libyan fighters. Now remember, there's lots of foreign fighters that are fighting in, in the ISIS ranks. We're talking thousands, perhaps tens of thousands. Um, and there's a good estimated 600 to 1,000 Libyans in that mix. And so the ISIS, their leaders got together and said, look, we're going to send our Libyan fighters. We don't need them here. We, we're going to send them back home. And we're going to send them to help Ansar al-Sharia fight against the government and the other militia groups. And sure enough, a couple of weeks after that decision was reached and the, and the fighters dispatched, what happened? Benghazi fell to Ansar al-Sharia. Benghazi was declared an Islamic emirate. Now, that's power. Mm-hmm. You make a decision, two weeks later, you have a city under your control. Incredible. And, and the amount of money that, that ISIS have available, I mean, it's some incredible number. It's, it's billions and billions it's, of oil money. Essentially, they, and ransom money as well. They are, so they are by far the richest terrorist organization in the world. They're, they're sort of wealth in the bank, as it were, estimated about two billion. And they're generating three million dollars a day through oil alone. And bear in mind, they're selling that oil for about 10% of its market price because they have to sell it on the black market. So they're selling a lot of oil. And you know who's buying a lot of the oil? Big oil? America? The Syrian government. Syria. So now ISIS and the Syrian government are fighting a war against each other, right? But the Syrian government <laughs> desperately needs oil and ISIS needs money. And neither of them. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's an absolutely ludicrous situation. Wow. Absolutely ludicrous. So yes, they, they have a lot of money and, and that too. So it's a, you know, sending fighters back, highly trained fighters in their hundreds back with money and possibly arms. It's going to make a difference. We've seen what happened in Mali, was it two or three years ago, when all uh, all the Tuareg fighters who used to work for Gaddafi and his army, um, when he died, they all had to flee. So they where they go, they went back home in massive convoys loaded with gold and RPGs and you know trucks full of ammunition, and they got to Mali, and they you know they joined the there was a little river, sort of rebellion brewing. They joined the, the rebellion. That turned into a revolution, basically. It's civil war. And that they, that rebellion ended up controlling half the country at one point and forcing France to intervene. You know, so the impact that, that returning fighters can have, even in small numbers, even if you're talking 100, 200 people, is huge in these contexts. Um, the other major factor for Africa is how the Islamic State, ISIS, has changed tactics from Al-Qaeda. So now, ISIS is essentially a breakaway from Al-Qaeda. They are now rivals for dominance in the global jihadist movement. Al-Qaeda are the moderates here. Okay? They're the good guys. <laughs> a phrase we never <laughs> thought we'd say on this show or any show. Al-Qaeda are the moderates. 
It just shows how everything is relative. Um, I mean, Al-Qaeda recently came out and condemned the beheading of, of those journalists. Um, Al-Qaeda has also condemned the sort of extreme brutality which ISIS has used because they say this is not, you know, this is not what, what we're about. We're fighting, fighting a pure fight, a good fight. And if we, if we do go after civilians, it has to be very calculated and, you know, weighed up. Whereas ISIS are just, you know, fuck them all. Um, we're going to go in there with all guns blazing. The other thing ISIS are doing, which is important, is instead of just being a terrorist group, hiding in the shadows, striking every now and then, and these, these big, um, high profile attacks, they're actually controlling territory. They're, they're holding real land. And in addition to this, they're not just holding it, they're actually running it. They're providing education, only to boys, but it's, you know, in many of these places, it's still more education than there would have been otherwise. They are providing health services. They are providing subsidized bread, subsidized electricity, garbage collection services. This is similar to Sudan, right? Um, or, or parts of, parts of Somalia. Somalia. Al Shabaab, yeah, Al Shabaab, yeah, you know. And, and it's a lot, often overlooked with, with these radical Islamist groups. We tend to, to focus on the violence and we miss the fact that the reason that they're so popular is because they are filling gaps that government mm. is not meeting. Um, you know, if, if, if there is only one school in the area and it's an ISIS school, you're going to send your kid there. That's just, that's just how humans work. They, they, they gravitate towards the people that give them what they want. You might just get extra lessons in indoctrination and, and, uh, and hey. techniques. <laughs> you know, if you as get long as you read. Sciences, yeah, yeah, you know. Science as well. Um, now what this means for Africa is that, and you can already see it, groups are starting to change their mentality. So Ansar Asharia, you know, took over a whole city and they, they said they're going to run it as a, um, they're going to run that as a little state. Boko Haram in Nigeria, that's the real problem. Um, within weeks of this whole ISIS thing exploding in the international media earlier this year, Boko Haram had changed their tactics. Instead of the hit and run guerrilla style warfare, what they're doing now is they are, you know, they're attacking a police station, sure, which they used to do before, but this time they're staying in the police station. Um, and they're attacking towns and they're staying there in villages. And if you look at a map of northeastern Nigeria, what's happening is the capital of, of I think it's Borno State, is, is a big town, big city called Maiduguri. Um, and Boko Haram are slowly almost like putting a necklace of, of, of their own territory around there. They're capturing towns and villages to block all routes in and out of Maiduguri. And presumably, eventually, they're going to um, take over Maiduguri itself. Now, is this on the back of of what? The media attention? The This is on the back know, of what? the effectiveness. of. So they've, what they've seen is they're like, whoa, here's a group very similar to us operating in Iraq and Syria. What they've done is they've just they've just done it. They haven't, they haven't talked about it. They haven't talked about taking land. They haven't talked about establishing a caliphate. They've just gone and done it. So they've raised the benchmark in terror, yes, basically. Yes, they've taken exactly. it to a new level and then they, they've they got new just, aspirations. They're just better at it than anyone else. Um, and that's the, that's the big problem for Al-Qaeda is Al-Qaeda can't compete. Al-Qaeda just don't seem to have that same strategic vision that ISIS do. It, it really is quite a remarkable story. And, and uh, I think it's one that's going to go on for, for a long time because even if Let's say for, let's say there's American planes and this, this coalition of the willing that they're trying to build to defeat ISIS. Let's say it works. It won't. But let's say it does. And ISIS are defeated. That doesn't matter because what ISIS has already done is they've, they've shown the way. You know, it's like the, the, they're John the Baptist. 
um and and someone else is going to f- going to follow in their footsteps because that they have really made the template for how um radical islam can work in the modern world um so just quickly before we get on to uh rebecca who's going to join us and we're going to be talking about the oscar trial oh, yeah. and and uh and you know, see whether she can remain calm and collected in <laughs> in relaying her thoughts on the uh, on the case. Um, you've just come back from the UK. Um, Scotland's going to a referendum on Thursday. Um, what was the mood like in uh, London? You were in London, presumably. Bafflement. I think the whole of England has been watching this, being like, "Oh, those stupid bloody Scots at it again." Just you know, this is what happens when you your, give them the vote. Exactly. Put your kilts back on and, and let's just, just get, you know, get back to normal. And then uh, while I was in England, a poll came out and the poll for the first time showed that the no votes, so no, that the yes votes, so the, the pro independence vote, um, was in the lead. And suddenly just the, the entire establishment just panicked. They were not expecting this. They were really thought that I think this was the whole, this whole thing was a political tactic. Was to say, okay, Scotland, you want, you know, sure, this is to Alex Salmond, who's been calling, causing so many problems. Sure, you want independence. Okay, let's see if your people want independence, because we know they don't. Yeah. Except, actually, maybe they do. <laughs> um, uh, but it's, I don't know, still, you, you come from a, from a divided island, don't you? Yeah, we do, but it, it's, look, the difference between sort of Greek, um, Cyprus and Turkish Cyprus is, is two very different, mm. two very different, uh, prospects comparing that to, let's say, Scotland. Although some might say, you know, it's not, not, <laughs> not that different. Uh, but there, there are obviously some big cultural, religious, uh, mm. differences that would, uh, and obviously the way in which, uh, Turkey took the, the third of Cyprus, um, w- was, you know, well, I guess it's invasion, but it was in the 1970s as mm. opposed to, you know, hundreds, hundreds of years ago. Um, but it's been relatively peaceful. Um, you know, I like to say they're able to hate each other in peace, which is something that maybe Gaza, <laughs> that, that, and, a, Gaza and Israel could, could do well to emulate. Hate each other in peace. That's the dream, isn't you it? Know, you just know, hate each other in peace. Um, so that, sounds, that sounds like something Martin Luther King would have said. Yeah. So, uh, uh yeah, I'm, I've been looking at the, the independence vote and thinking, you know, it's getting close and it could go, really go either way. Uh, and then we'd have to see things like, um, we, we could no longer use United Kingdom or Great Britain as oh. terms, you'd ha- we'd have to change that. Uh, Scotland would have to apply to the EU uh, for, for membership uh, as well as NATO. So there, there's a hell of a lot of, of ramifications uh, um, from this. I mean, you know, they're trying to reestablish where the nuclear uh, um, <laughs> arms are held in Scotland. They're like, we don't want this, take this back, go put them back in the UK. So, or in England, at least. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. And I think, it, you know, it's obviously a whole lot of Scottish nationalism and roots and that heritage from, you know, that, um, from, uh, from hundreds of years ago that I think is, is starting to boil over. So it'd be interesting to see what, what happens there. See, I think, you know, obviously that the nationalist factor plays a really large role, but I also think overlooked is, is this the political factor and that what's happening in the UK is that David Cameron is taking it down a very specific path and it's a path you know that would be familiar to to a lot of um, american republicans i think um small government huge cutbacks in social services um while not addressing any of the sort of failures of the economic system that caused the first financial crash and i think people in scotland are seeing this 
I think a lot of people in the UK are, are quite outraged, particularly the, 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 the people who would vote Labour and Lib Dem, who do form a majority of the country taken together. But Scotland is, is the only part of the country that, that, that can really do anything about it. Um, because they, I mean, there's pretty much no Tory presence there whatsoever. So it's, a, it is historically a very strong Labour ward. Um, and they don't want to go in this direction that David Cameron's taking them. If it had been a Labour government in power, this vote would not be happening. And I think even if they don't get the vote uh, and, and, and go for the independence route, that I think Scottish politics will change um, you know, significantly mm. after this, which I think will be a win-win for them, which either, whichever way it goes. Um, on the line from Cape Town, we had Rebecca. Rebecca, are you there? Hello? Uh, we're going to just try to get it back quickly. Um, I think Rebecca? No, uh, we're going to try to get it back on the line quickly. So, um, yeah, as we're saying, I think, um, you know, there are going to be some very serious changes to, um, how the, the, you know, the English government, uh, um, will have influence over Scotland going forward after this. Are they already talking about, uh, instigating a lot more, um, autonomy, especially local governance mm. over local issues? Uh, I mean, which is why the Scottish Parliament was set up, um, you know, what's it, 99, I think yeah. it was. Uh, but it'll be taking it to the next level. So we're just checking. Rebecca, are you back on back on the line? I am. Hi guys, how's it going? Uh, good, good to good to hear you're in good spirits after uh, another stint in the court. There, Rebecca, I'm just going to come out and ask this: Did we get screwed over by Dildoes Eventualis? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that is the question on all our minds, and it's one that obviously only legal experts can answer, and which they seem to be answering in conflicting ways, which is obviously much more confusing for the rest of us who only became acquainted with the term during the course of the Pistorius trial. I mean, for, for it seems virtually split down the middle, in fact, that for every expert you find saying that she misapplied the law, there, obviously say she was spot on. So it is difficult to know what to make of it, but it does appear from reports, at least, that the state believes that there is or should be grounds for an appeal, which we know can only happen on grounds of law, the law being misapplied. So if, if the state believes that there is um, a reasonable a reasonable um, ground there, then, then we will obviously see an appeal and to be up to the Supreme Court of Appeal, which will obviously be a bench, not just one judge, to make the decision there. So, I mean, if we have that massive split, and you say it's almost a 50-50 split, depending on which expert you speak to, uh, it does seem highly likely that the you know, that there could be an appeal in, in, in this case. I think that there probably will be, yeah. We just, it's, but what has become clear from the case is that actually this concept is very poorly understood in law, in South African law. So, I mean, one of the things that we can perhaps look forward to as a positive outcome from this trial is perhaps to have this area of law developed more strongly. And what I've heard from, from a number of legal experts is that the reason why an appeal might be really important is because there are a lot of people who feel strongly that the decision shouldn't be allowed to stand on the books, obviously has some slight precedent um, potential, although perhaps not very, because apparently decisions made by a single judge carry less weight in that regard than bench decisions. But this is one of the reasons why people think it is important to have this tested, because otherwise the notion will stand on the books, and as people have suggested, it may be entirely misread by members of the public as kind of carte blanche to go ahead and fire through doors. What would happen if um, Judge Masipa hands down a really harsh, well, the, the, the harshest or the sentence under the couple who homicide ruling? 
you know, would that affect, would, I mean, would that affect the state's uh, ambition to go for an appeal if they get a really stiff sentence? It's interesting to think about. I mean, clearly now when um, appealing for asking not to have his bail extended, said that the state would, I mean, said that it was their expectation that Nasipa would hand down a very stiff sentence. And obviously this is sort of, I mean, this is mere conjecture from his part because there have been other speculations that he might get a suspended sentence. But um, if I, I, I don't know. If, if Oscar was sentenced to, you know, say even up to 15 years as is possible, then perhaps the state would be content to leave it at that. But my suspicion is that they wouldn't because of what I've just said mm. about the need perhaps to have this this verdict sword. The really interesting question, as I said before, would be if the defense would, would appeal a strong sentence because then they would be on very tricky grounds if a, an appeal court were to strike down Nasipa's culpable homicide, homicide conviction and replace it with a verdict of murder, which would obviously be their absolute worst-case scenario. So the 13th of October is when we're expecting the, um, the sentence to be uh, relayed to us uh, in the public. Um, is it usual to take uh, this kind of length of time in between announcing the verdict and, and offering the sentence? I think it is. I mean, perhaps it's more complex in this case because we have reason to believe that there will be a fair amount of witnesses testifying on each side, both in mitigation of sentence and appealing for a high sentence. So, for instance, the Oscar camp will likely to see yet more psychologists, psychiatrists, real that to testify about disability, to testify about perhaps what it would be like for the stories in the prison system, whereas for the other side, the state might well receive applications from women's groups looking to make appeals based on the um, on, on the frequency with which femicide happens in South Africa and we need to send out a strong sentence in that regard, even though it's been you know clarified by law that that isn't going to happen here. They nonetheless will be wanting to make a, a big deal of it. So I think um, given the, the amount that both sides have to, to take care of, the gap is probably not that strange. Also, don't forget that every party involved in this case has other ongoing matters, particularly Chazim Sipa, so it may well also be that that was simply the earliest possible date that they could find to accommodate all sides. What's your take on, on whether the intense media pressure, the worldwide global focus on this case, could have had on the decision, on the verdicts, on, uh, you know, on the sentencing? You know, it, it shouldn't really, but, you know, is it possible? Could we, you know, could you be that uh, um, impartial to everything that's going on from a media perspective? I mean, I think that if she hadn't been impartial, her temptation would surely have been to impose a stronger sentence since it's become very clear that in the court of public, I mean, to, to impose the harsher verdict. And from the court of public opinion, has certainly now, I think, become clear. I read a stat that said something like 70% of opinion expressed about the verdict was negative, that many people think that Oscar Torres was guilty of murder. However, you could also argue the opposite, that being aware of this trend of public opinion, she may have wanted to, you know, very sternly show her independence in the face of it. I don't think the judgment people would have been, would, would, would have been swayed. I mean, it's a very basic, most basic thing that we ask from a judge is, that kind of um, objectivity. I think that the the, question, the other question you need to ask, as in fact he did in the verdict, is whether the course of the trial was was impacted by the media. And the one thing she pointed out, obviously, was that in normal trials, witnesses cannot talk to each other at all, whereas in this trial she said that every single witness was aware of what the witness before had said them due to the media attention, and she felt 
that certain witness testimony had been affected by that, which is a pretty serious accusation, and it's certainly, I'm, I'm sure, one that will be taken into consideration by judges in the future when considering whether to allow media coverage of a trial. Um, Rebecca, I want to bring Simon in on this one. I mean, we've talked about the global, the intense global focus um, on the trial. Simon, what's been the African perspective on on this trial? Have you seen... Uh, has it uh, featured much in, in in different countries or any countries? Well, someone was telling me, I think it might have actually been you, Bex, that uh, when they were sort of analyzing where the tweets were coming from about Oscar Pistorius, um, Nigeria had one of the, the highest numbers of tweets on the subject of in, in the whole world. So that is quite a remarkable statistic. Look, I think everyone's interested in this story. And I, I get all those criticisms that, yes, they're more important things. There are other stories, et cetera, et cetera. But the sheer drama of this particular story, all the factors that, that you know, the, the disabled athlete, the superstar, the, the murder, the Valentine's the Day, woman. the beautiful woman, everything coalesces, you know, it, it just, it has every single element that you'd want in a good, gripping human interest story. And that's why everyone is so interested. The grumpy journalist, Daily Maverick if journalist. I just, <laughs> yes. If I could break in there, I think when we were discussing why it was possible, how, how it was possible in Nigeria, be tweeting so hard about this. Somebody suggested that perhaps it's because um, there's a great interest in track athletes, perhaps their own um, athletics industry as well, which I suppose is, is also plausible. But I was also telling people that I was in Italy two weeks ago on holiday. I was desperately trying to get Italians to discuss the Amanda Knox thing, which I'm very interested in. Obviously, this trial that gripped Italy about an American exchange student who killed her British housemate. Allegedly, I should add, she's in fact found guilty. But um, they were having none of it. They just wanted to discuss Oscar. So that, to me, was quite telling as well. <laughs> because there's also been this, you know, the, the naysayers in South Africa who think that the media have been blowing it up to their own game always say, oh, no one's really interested. You know, the facts just do not bear that out. The millions and millions of page counts, they hit the coverage. And, no, you know, media don't give the public what they don't want to eat. It's as simple as that. And media aren't altruistic in that way. If nobody was consuming the stuff... The media would not have gone both the walls of it in the way that they have. But it's irritating to me when people suggest that there's some vast media conspiracy to keep interest in it going when it's very clear there is an appetite from the public. Stilly, several of our um, best read stories are Oscar related, aren't they? Yeah, so a, a lot of the stuff that uh, Rebecca has done over the, you know, since the start of this, was, Feb, was it February 14, 2013? Sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that very first one, I think that, that analysis piece that you wrote was uh, for a couple of months, I think the most read piece on Daily Maverick uh, is entire history, you know, which was bigger than the Marikana story. Um, and then, and that kind of held the, that kind of held the most read uh, article for a while. And then, you know, Ava wrote, defended some uh, crazy American woman who came and shot a caged lion. Uh, and that kind of blew up around the world. But a, a lot of these pieces, um, have have done really well. They do consistently well, um, you know, and that's obviously credit to Rebecca's writing and also I think to a lot of the historians who genuinely you know troll her and you know <laughs> are, uh, are are keeping up with what uh, what Miss Davis has to say about uh, about the trial. What has been your your favorite interaction with with a member of the public, either virtually or uh, or in person? Historians or the trial? public? The public in general. I'm, 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 I suspect it will be a pastorian, but um, I actually in in face to face, I've had very little that has been weird about the, the story. Other than people constantly wanting to 
discuss it, of course. But um, in terms of sort of crazy historian advances, those have all taken place uh, via Twitter. I mean, it's hard even to pick one because the level of the incivility of the discourse, <laughs> the bizarre claims, the conspiracizing, it's very strange. And it's actually my impression that a lot of people, they, they seem mainly to be women, that a lot of them don't live in South Africa, actually, that a lot of them live in the UK. And I'm really fascinated about them, actually, because one wonders if they were this passionate about the stories before the whole myth judge. I mean, I never got any sense. I didn't follow the stories of Korea that closely before this. But I never got the sense that these people actually existed. So I'm wondering if it's just something to do. I mean, we've seen it a million times before. Men get, men get convicted of murder and sent off to jail and get endless proposals, propositions. Something about the bad boy behind bars. So is that how it's done? Because, okay, no. now I know. <laughs> top, <laughs> top tip for Simon there. Simon's uh, new uh, uh, recruitment uh, tactics. Uh, Bix, do you get the sense <laughs> that these guys are—they're not uh, ex-South Africans, for example, um, living abroad. They're just you know random English people. I actually think they are random English. People. They have Twitter handles like Essex Mamas Two and things. <laughs> but obviously, women who don't have a lot going on in terms of work, from what I can gather. There have been a few other more interesting and interesting characters on Twitter who seem to have personal knowledge of Pistorius and his inner circle who have been tweeting quite a lot. But, um, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it has been one of the strangest elements of this trial, I think. I think, guys, if I could bring something in, that one of the most interesting things now going forward will be the extent to which we see people catching in on this trial now that the sort of legal restrictions on that are lifted. So we've already seen, for instance, the publication of the book by Pistorius' ex Sam Taylor's mother, I think came out at the end of last week, Oscar and Accident have waiting to happen, which could not legally be brought out during the framework of the trial, because even though we don't have a jury system, I suppose it was thought that it might impact on the on the outcome. We're seeing the, the, the slew of books coming out about Oscar. Sam Taylor gave an interview to the to the UK Mirror last week for which she was paid supposedly five hundred thousand Rand at least, and we know too that the Stian camps basically are not giving interviews to local papers. They they save it for international publications. There's been some criticism of them for that, but I mean, I, I feel we can't really we can't really blame them if it's true that their daughter was their actually their you know the kind of their their breadwinner. But I think that if if we thought this was a thing before, now we're going to see more and more of this sort of industry cashing in. And of course, Oscar himself, the, the reports now, whether true or not, that Oscar tends, intends to write his own book. Um, I thought it was, Stephen Curtis wrote an interesting piece, um, just made, touching on the fact that, you know, he felt like, because he wasn't following the case, obviously, as close as someone, you know, who was assigned to the case, he, you know, he now got the feeling of, of, of like the public now having a, a more intimate knowledge of what was going on than he was as a journalist and kind of how the, the media coverage and being broadcast live on TV and radio gave, you know, brought people closer to that and, you know, and almost asking a question that, we, you know, we we're almost making us, could all, almost be making ourselves irrelevant in some cases now that we've got this intense media coverage. Well, if, if, that's, uh, if that's how the journalists feel, imagine how the lawyers and the judges must feel because now suddenly everyone has a law degree. <laughs> I'm sure Bex feels like she's got a law degree now, qualified by experience, I'm sure. I saw a, do- a doctor on t- on Twitter tweeting that um, lawyers over the past month get a taste of what doctors have to deal with every week of their lives, which is the public thinking they know more than them about their, 
their field of expertise. And I can only imagine how infuriating that must And be. that's because Google says so, right? Yeah, uh, um, Bex, just, just before we let you go and, uh, and treat your, your, your Helen Zilla voice um, <laughs> with Botox, um, Shreen Devani, um, what's happened? Will that go the same route as the Oscar trial in terms of broadcasting live, the intense media scrutiny, the the, the, the eyes of the world on 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 this case in South Africa? In short, no. There's no indication that it will. There's been no applications to broadcast the Duani trial, which is interesting in itself. And either it's because media outlets have assessed the appetite and found it wanting, or because which I suspect might be close to the truth. What we seem to have learned from the Oscar trial is that these pop-up channels, though they might be wildly popular, don't seem to be making that much money, perhaps just because the endeavor is so expensive to to, to maintain over the weeks and months as pop-up TV, etc. My sense, too, and perhaps this is just actually my personal approach because I'm so thoroughly oscar is that there may be a certain amount of trial fatigue. The thought of now having to get emotionally invested from the beginning in an entire different set of court proceedings just seems so utterly exhausting and I can't imagine I'm the only one who feels that way. As well as having to sit on those courtroom benches uh, for an extended, an extended period of time. Um, exactly. Because ultimately court's quite boring, isn't it? Like, you know, I'd, I'd try and watch a lot of the, you know, every now and then there'd be something interesting that happened, but mostly it was just, you know, white men talking to themselves about <laughs> stuff that exactly. I didn't really understand. In a long drawn out sense as well. Yeah. Although what many people said, which I totally agree with, is that the Duane case is likely to be far more interesting than the Oscar case for the obvious reason that there's far more facts in dispute. Here we had a case where there was a dead woman's body and only one man who admitted to having pulled the trigger. In the Duane case, everything is up for grabs. He denies the entire thing. So it will, I think it will actually be a more interesting case. I just want absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> we'll make sure to pass those sentiments on to our editor. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll let you get back to your healing. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Bye. Cheers, Bex. Cheers, Bex. Um, Simon, we've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, what's uh, what's up for the rest of the week? What are, what are you looking at covering? What's happening? And how do you go about picking uh, a topic to, to cover? Oh, that's a good question. Um, a lot of it is driven by the news. Or um, the Richard Poplack method of a bottle of Glenfinnick <laughs> and finding the answer somewhere between the, the top and the, the bottom you of know, the at, table. At some point uh, on this show, Greg Nicholson and I had a chat about the whole uh, Hunter S. Thompson approach to journalism. Um, I, I think I think Greg Nicholson was quite tempted, but uh, from my perspective, I, I just you know I, I just can't do very good work under the influence of anything. I need to be quite sober in order to get this stuff out, uh, the stuff that Poplack manages to achieve. And I've no idea well, in what state he is when he writes it, but he certainly looks like he must be in an altered state of some description. I, I think he's quite open about the fact that uh, Glenn Fiddick is his crush. <laughs> and, well, you know, kudos to him, you know, I guess, different <laughs> folks. Um, but yeah, but what's on the radar for you? Um, I Well, tomorrow I'm going to an interesting conference on Ebola. So, yeah, we keep we keep covering Ebola and we're going to be keeping covering it for, for quite a while still because I think it's it's just going to get worse before it gets better. So this is at the University of Pretoria and just a few experts discussing, you know, how it works, how it can be contained, what needs to happen for it to be contained, why it has not been contained so far because it really hasn't. Um, and Did you have to pass through a temperature scanner on your way back? Yes, everyone does. Yeah. Um, but, but that's been so in place at, at Oratumbo. That's, that's been in place for years. Okay. Um, it's that thing, I don't know, when, when you're waiting for passport control and they make you take oh, off your glasses if you're wearing them and you kind of look oh. into this, this weird screen. Oh, wow. 
I just always thought it was a metal detector. <laughs> like, because I look dodgy, I'm always, I'm always in the, the in queue the getting picked out. Yeah. Yeah. So, an interesting, yeah, slightly terrifying thing about, uh, about the potential impact of, of Ebola is, um, no one really knows what happens when Ebola meets HIV. And in Guinea, has a, Guinea in particular has a very high prevalence of HIV. So although the, the epidemic is centered more in Liberia at the moment, what people think is it's going to start hitting HIV positive communities in Guinea and then it's just going to be unstoppable. Um, and there's a the chance because every time it, it, it transfers to another host, it replicates itself. And every time it replicates itself, there is the, the possibility for it to evolve. And to um, mutate. And to mutate into something. And, and, and so we could be looking at the Al-Qaeda version of Ebola now, and there could be an ISIS one waiting, <laughs> waiting for to, exactly, around the corner. Exactly. <laughs> this is the good Ebola right now. Um, and and what, what, what an even worse Ebola would look like is if it is transmitted through the air. Through the air right. um, and that would really just, uh, I mean, I, I, I can't even begin to think of the consequences mm. of that. I've, you know, um, we had an editorial meeting last week. I think you were missing, but, uh, I was talking about trying to go to Liberia to, to see if we could cover it. Um, and, and the two few things which, which deterred me, um, one is, is the sheer cost, something like 30, 40,000 rand to get there to $200 a night in the one hotel that's still open because all the others have closed, which may or may not have running water. Exactly. And the other thing, it's not so much the fact of being there because I think if you, if you, Go in there with your eyes open and you, and you know what you're doing. Um, you, you can, you, you can, you can pretty much extinguish the risk to yourself by, by being sensible and taking precautions. But when you come back from an Ebola area, you have to spend three weeks in quarantine. So for example, all the doctors without borders staff that have gone to Liberia and, and they do in these, in these high emergency things, they do stints of about, about two months. Um, but of that two months, five weeks are spent in Liberia working. And three weeks is stuck in a hotel room in Brussels or wherever they, they, they get back to, um, in, in complete quarantine. And, uh, yeah, so that sort of gives you a, gives you an indication of the severity of, of what's happening. Ben, isn't, uh, isn't Claire your wife? Um, she's working for Medicine Sans Frontier at yes. the moment, right? Yes. She's, she's with Medicine Sans Frontier in the Central African Republic. And there isn't any incidence of Ebola there. It's quite far away, so it should be safe. But it's still having an impact because what's happening is organizations like MSF, and MSF in particular because they are they are heavily involved, they are having to send a lot of their best staff, their most experienced staff, to deal with this crisis in, in Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone. And they're taking them from other crisis countries, um, such as um, Central African Republic and stuff. Um, so, you know, Suddenly positions are opening up and so people like Claire, who's, who's very new, are having to step up and, and fill those more senior positions. So it's having an impact everywhere. Well, that's uh, about all we've got time for. Um, we'll be back next week. Here's hoping uh, you have an Ebola-free week coming up. Um, I was joined in studio by Simon Allison, Chief Africa Correspondent for the Daily Maverick, and myself, Stilly Shralambus. We look forward to chatting next week, same time, or catch us on the podcast at dailymaverick.coza or cliffcentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.